Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, David Goldhill explains how American health care killed his father and what can be done to fix it. Legal scholar Gail Harriet discusses affirmative action at the Supreme Court. Jesse Walker talks about paranoia in American politics. Josh Blackman tells the tale of the Obamacare decision. And award-winning author Frank DeCotter unravels the tragedy of China's so-called liberation in 1949. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. When President Obama very nearly took the United States to war in Syria, he did so over the objections of most of the American people and, uh, more importantly, over the objections of Congress. Here to talk about that, I have two vice presidents here at the Cato Institute, Gene Healy and Christopher Preble, vice president for defense and foreign policy studies here at Cato. Gentlemen, welcome. Nice to be here. So, Thanks for having us on. So when we begin here, uh, this was – let's get a sense of where President Obama took us first with Libya and with Syria when it comes to exercising the power to make war or at least asserting uh, the ability to make war without really anybody's approval at all. Well, in the case of Libya, uh, we'll start with Libya because I think that it's important to draw distinctions between the two. Um, in, in both instances, the president said this was a, a, a limited use of force. It did not involve U.S. troops on the ground. Um, but one of the key distinctions that the Obama administration hung a lot of importance on was on the UN Security Council authorization in the case of Libya, which they obviously didn't have in the case of Syria. Uh, in fact, uh, Obama administration lawyers claimed that the UN Security Council uh, authorization with respect to Libya was sufficient uh, to grant him authority to wage war without the say-so of Congress. I think, again, and I think the legal reasoning is really flimsy there, but they didn't even have that in the case of Syria. So uh, I think right out of the gate, there were some important kind of uh, international legal questions, differences between these two cases, uh, which are relevant in terms of how the president approached the problem uh, here domestically. Well, in Libya, you know, they, they never – admitted it was a war. The, the, the phrase that they used was a kinetic military action, uh, which seems to me redundant because kinetic action is really the only kind of action you can have. Uh, but uh, it was a fairly extreme uh, exercise of presidential war making, uh, given what Senator Obama had said on the, the campaign trail about the president's limited ability to use force without authorization from Congress. Uh, in Libya, uh, Obama also became the second president uh, in American history to uh, take a war beyond the 60-day limit uh, of the war, the 1973 War Powers Resolution. The first was Bill Clinton, uh, both of them constitutional law professors, so perhaps that's a, an argument for never letting constitutional law professors near the Oval Office. Uh, so in a lot of ways, I think it was a surprise that uh, President Obama over Labor Day weekend earlier this year uh, announced that he was going to seek congressional authorization for the use of force in Syria. Now, when I talk to uh, John Samples about this, whatever we think of the president's assertions of power um, uh, without congressional approval, he did – go seek congressional approval. So even if it was, in some sense, sort of a cop-out for him to do so, uh, that is encouraging, right? Moderately, yes. I mean, I think that he was uh, 
there were lots of reasons why he wanted to do that. I've already mentioned the one that he didn't have the cover of the, of the international law under the UN Security Council, but he also knew that he was uh, confronting kind of overwhelming public opposition and perhaps hoped or expected that uh, members of Congress would give him some political cover by uh, signing on to the intervention. And, and in fairness, he would have been okay in thinking that because in virtually every prior case, Congress has rolled over uh, in, the fr in the face of congressional uh, uh, presidential assertions uh, that a particular military action was, was necessary. So uh, it was not unreasonable, not wholly unreasonable for him to think he would have gotten a resolution this time around. What's different, of course, is, is just how much opposition there was and how willing the American people were to make that issue uh, kind of front and center for a short period of time, and they communicated that very forcefully to their to their members of Congress. Yeah, it seemed if you watch the whip counts of the Washington Post and other places uh, in the run-up to the planned vote, uh, the more the Obama administration made their public case for a, a, a war in Syria, the, the, the more they talked, the worse it got for them. Uh, and I think that was in part because the case was so incoherent. I mean, what were we standing up for here? The uh, the the high principle that if you're going to slaughter a lot of civilians, you really ought to use conventional weapons to do it. Uh, it didn't make much sense. You couldn't make much sense out of what uh, you know we 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 plan to achieve. You know, at one point, uh, Secretary of State Kerry goes practically in one breath from comparing uh, Assad to Hitler, and then says, "But this will be an unbelievably small." action. You know, you won't even notice it. Because clearly that's what you needed to, to fight Hitler is an unbelievably small action that you wouldn't even notice. Uh, just as, as an aside here, the, the president and uh, the people who work for him when making the case for war really treated uh, the use of chemical weapons as, well, this is the end, that's the end of the discussion. Right. But as Gene points out, it, it, it wasn't the end of the discussion. They would have liked it to have been the end of the discussion. But that was such a flimsy case. It was a mistake for the president to draw the supposed red line a year, you know, a year earlier. Um, and I think so many people uh, who who raised objections to this particular intervention really pointed to the absurdity, as Jane points out, that it's okay to kill, you know, over a hundred thousand people uh, with conventional weapons, but if you kill fifteen or sixteen hundred with with chemical weapons, then then that's uh, you know clearly beyond the pale. Can I also make another quick point about? Um, Caleb, you asked the question, isn't this a good thing that the president came to Congress? Um, I, I generally think it is a good thing. I, I would especially think so if it sets a precedent. I'm afraid it won't. But um, I, I perversely would have liked to have seen a vote nonetheless uh, because I think it would have been a it, – it's rare that members of Congress have to go on the record at all when it comes to foreign policy. And we know that there were some, and we just don't know how many, some Republican members of Congress who who knew the overwhelming opposition of their constituents back home and who were publicly making the case for war. And I, I almost I, – I wished that they would have been forced to actually cast that vote so that they could say to their constituents, we understand – I understand as your representative that you are completely and utterly opposed to this decision, but I'm voting the other way anyway. And, and again, I think it's particularly difficult for Republicans uh, when a Democratic president asks, at least a Democratic member can say, well, I didn't want to undermine the, the credibility of the president's authority and a whole range of other issues. But a Republican couldn't hang – that obviously wasn't the reason why some Republicans uh, were making the case for war. Well, I, I agree with Chris. I wish there had been a vote. And uh, 
it looked likely that he, he, he would have lost that vote. Uh, and I think there would be more possibility for a precedent in that case. I mean, we really have a dysfunctional constitutional culture, and you, you saw some of it in the debate uh, where members of Congress, like uh, the notorious Peter King, uh, were actually insulted that the president went and asked for a vote. That uh, He said, the president doesn't need 535 members of Congress to enforce his own red line. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Leon Panetta, the former uh, defense secretary, uh, criticized his former boss, President Obama, for quote-unquote subcontracting uh, war and peace to Congress, uh, which is a a pretty perverse view of the constitutional uh, requirements from a guy who spent most of his career in Congress. So I think, uh, you know, there, there, there is a lot to worry about in terms of the, the attitudes that, that uh, congressmen and, and people in the executive branch have towards the war-making process that the Constitution uh sets up, but the fact is, and the good news is, that congressional resistance really did matter here. Even though we didn't come to a vote, uh, the, the, you know, the, sort of the writing was on the wall, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, we, did a mani- we did manage to avoid a war, and I think congressional resistance, even if it didn't come to a formal vote, had something to do with that. Congressional opposition here certainly mattered, but is, is that going to translate uh, down the road, or do you see signs that that will translate down the road to a more principled opposition broadly to the president making these kinds of uh, claims about uh, his authority to make war? I, I would certainly hope so, but I think there's reason for skepticism. Again, the, the pattern um, for the last, what, since Korea uh, at least, uh, is for the Congress to defer. Even the War Powers Act is a is really a quite shocking uh, kind of admission of congressional weakness. Uh, uh, if, if they merely interpreted the Constitution as it's written, they wouldn't need a War Powers Act in the first place, as I interpret it. Um, but, but having said that, um, you know, I've been doing this job for 11 years and watching the politics of foreign policy for a lot longer still. Uh, it is very rare. In, in recent American history where public opposition manifests itself through Congress and significantly um, impedes, uh, you know, um, military action. And so in that sense, I'm, I'm, you know, encouraged modestly, but, you know, kind of we'll wait and see until the next time around. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Uh, it would have been better to have had a vote. Uh, but, you know, as Chris points out, the uh, modern presidential practice, particularly where you have something where there, there isn't plan to, there's no plan to have boots on the ground, the presidential practice is just, you know, let the tomahawks fly and, you know, dare Congress to do something about it. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's significant that uh, Congress was supposed to, uh, was expected in this case to stand and be counted, uh, and uh, that their resistance uh, and really the public's resistance, uh, you know, from the, the news accounts, the uh, calls are coming in you know, 99 to 1 uh, against bombing Syria. Uh, that's a positive sign. We'll have to see, you know, where this takes us. There is, meanwhile, a more philosophical argument. I mean, Gene mentioned King, who's perhaps one of the most notorious, but there are other members of Congress and in the Senate who uh, genuinely don't want the President of the United States to 
be compelled to come to Congress in the first place. And they argue this quite emphatically. I mean, I think it's, I think it's shocking myself. In fact, I was, I was in a meeting um, around the time when this was being debated and uh, a staffer for, for someone in the Senate, a senator who had voted in favor of the, of the resolution in the committee, uh, you know, explaining his unpopular vote, uh, said that he, you know, he, he really was troubled by the prospect that a president wouldn't get to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it with respect to foreign policy. I was, I was shocked. I, I just couldn't believe it. Uh, I'm, that's, in, that's exactly what. Yeah, that's, <laughs> what the, the way, that's, that's the way it's supposed that's to work. That's the way it's supposed to work. And it was just shocking to me. Uh, and, you know, I guess I can, I can appreciate the candor, but, but it's, just, it's just so misguided uh, on, on many different levels. There are a lot of uh, people in the Senate, and uh, I guess governors probably their opinions are not as, as uh, widely available on these sorts of things, but who are probably going to want to be president at some point. Is, is there any sense that the, the, the gaggle of people running for president will have some regard for uh, this, the, the fact that the war power resides in Congress here? Uh, well, I mean uh- – <laughs> Not only did uh, Barack Obama say that the president didn't have any constitutional authority uh, to launch a non-defensive war without Congress uh, on the campaign trail, it's you know what he said to Charlie Sa- reporter Char- Charlie Savage. Uh, Joe Biden said the the virtually the same thing in virtually the the, the same language, uh, and Biden, in fact, uh, on the campaign trail said that. Uh, if uh, George W. Bush moved to attack Iran without congressional authorization, he would uh, lead the charge for impeachment, which he couldn't really do from the Senate. But uh, let's put that let's put that aside. Uh, so you do. You, it's pretty rare to see a president, uh, you know, get into office and say, you know, now that I'm here, I'd like to have less power. Uh, so I don't think you know if we write the constitutional balance and put the president back in the presidency back in its proper constitutional place. I don't think we're, you know, we should hold out much hope for uh, a, a man on horseback who, who runs for that office and decides that he, he doesn't want uh, complete discretion in, in, in foreign policy. I think it's going to have to happen from the ground up and from the constituents to Congress and, and so forth. Are there leading voices in uh, Congress that are basically want to reassert that prerogative on behalf of Congress? Well, obviously, Rand Paul used the president's own remarks from 2007 that Gene referenced um, as the foundation for a Senate resolution in 2011 around the time of the Libyan operation. Uh, but at the time, it got only 10 votes. Um, I'd love to see, uh, you know, that that vote uh, again. Uh, um, uh, and I think that, again, just kind of affirming the principle that when we're talking about a war of choice, a war that does not engage vital U.S. national security interests, which is clearly not in self-defense, then uh, the president's authority to wage war is extremely constrained uh, and at a minimum should have to go to Congress uh, for, for authorization, it seems to me, for approval. Um, that's what president said, uh, but, but when, like I said, when they passed this resolution, they, it just got 10 votes, all Republicans. All right. I've, I've heard, heard it said uh, before that any time libertarians have an I told you so moment, it's usually a horrible disaster. <laughs> and uh, the, do, does it require us to have some sort of horrible disaster of a president going it alone for us to, to get back to that uh, 
the, that sort of riding the ship? Well, as Chris pointed out, the uh, War Powers Resolution uh, passed over Richard Nixon's veto in uh, 73 is uh, pretty much worthless. Uh, It has not significantly constrained uh, any president. Uh, But you did see during that period uh, a reassertion of Congress's powers. You saw some moves to to, uh, cut off funding for the Vietnam War. You saw new restrictions put on the intelligence agencies when people found out the massive abuses that had gone on uh, over four presidencies, uh, unrestrained spying. Uh, so you you did have a pushback by Congress, and it did happen, you know, pretty much as the result of the disaster that was the Vietnam War and the revelation of uh, of crimes in the wake of Watergate. So uh, at least the, the the recent history, or the rel- relatively recent history of uh, you know congression, uh, Congress reasserting itself does unfortunately follow that model. Something bad happens or something bad is revealed and there's a there's a reaction to it. But but this is and this is in one of these instances where the con- Congress's um, propensity to to ignore its its obligations under the constitution let alone its authority uh, is so pernicious because uh, they are not expected to cast a vote on these sorts of wars. They claim credit when they go well. They blame the, the execution. They blame the administration when it goes poorly. And in fact, so many of our foreign policy disasters of the last 20 or 30 years have been bipartisan. Uh, and so I think, again, it is, it is better uh, that they have to go on record. It is better that they have to go before their constituents if they're getting calls 100 to 1 against and explain, you know, I made this vote, I voted my conscience, and if you want to vote me out in the next primary or the next election, go ahead and do so. Uh, the fact is that those kinds of circumstances are extremely rare. Gene Healy, Chris Preble at the Cato Institute, two vice presidents here at the Cato Institute. Uh, you can read more on uh, matters of war and peace and constitutional power at our website, cato.org. After the needless death of his father, business executive David Goldhill began a personal exploration of a healthcare industry that for years has delivered poor service and irregular quality at astonishingly high cost. In his new book, Catastrophic Care, Goldhill shows the U.S. healthcare sector is not worth preserving in anything like its current form, and President Obama's healthcare law is likely to exacerbate its failings. He spoke at the Cato Institute in September. My uh, my interest in healthcare uh, began with what happened to my father. Uh, my dad, at the age of 82, uh, after work one day, walked into a hospital with some shortness of breath. They kept him for observation overnight. Uh, within that day, he acquired an infection in the hospital that led to a series of infections that ultimately uh, killed him. And obviously, uh, this is an extraordinary personal tragedy, and I think what turned my interest from the personal grief to the broader issues of healthcare is that within a month after my father died, the New Yorker published a piece by Atul Gawande about Peter Pronovost's effort to get hospitals to reduce the incidence of acquired infections. In that article, he mentioned that roughly 100,000 Americans die every year from hospital infections. There's roughly 200,000 that die from mistakes of all types but that many of these infections were, in fact, easily preventable. And Pronovost had come up with a series of protocols to prevent most of them, almost two-thirds of them in hospitals that had adopted them. Uh, 
What was interesting to me as someone who just lost a parent and as a businessman is that it cost almost nothing to implement these protocols. And yet, he was having a hard time getting hospitals to do it. Uh, I at one time ran a movie theater chain, and we had a simple rule. If a soda spills, 10 minutes to clean it up or the manager is docked. Why? Well, the reason was very simple, is that we competed with movie theaters across the street. And if you walked into our movie theater chain on a Saturday night, and the first thing you saw was some spilled soda on the floor, it changed your perception of the quality of the experience. Something very simple, very small. Why was it that hospitals weren't incented, economically or otherwise, to do something very simple and very small that saved lives? And it really is the start of a series of questions I've asked as a businessman about our healthcare industry. Catastrophic care is about essentially a business person's look at healthcare from the outside, not accepting all of the sort of complex reasons and inside healthcare explanations for why healthcare has gotten so bad at so many things. It really is an attempt to understand and to portray healthcare as an island outside of the mainland of our economy and try to understand how those differences have affected what we see in healthcare, from high error rates to very erratic quality to an enormous amount of excess care coexisting with people who can't get any access to care to extraordinarily high prices and, of course, the absolute worst customer service of any industry on earth. My father's experience um, isn't the only thing that, that, uh, uh, that drives my perspective of healthcare. Uh, there's also having just been alive. In 1965, on the eve of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, the computer industry existed only in its mainframe form. So only the biggest uh, enterprises on Earth can use a computer, and only a couple hundred thousand people had any idea how to use it anywhere. Um, in 1965, if we were having this discussion, and I asked you to think about 45 years later, which of these two industries, healthcare, which was about to benefit from expanded access because of Medicare and Medicaid, or computers, would make the following excuses for failure? It's too complicated for people to understand. It's too distant from what people do every day. It's not a discretionary good. You, you don't have a choice to buy it. You have to buy it. Which industry would use that to explain its dysfunction? 1965 happens to be the year that the DEC Corporation introduced the PDP-8, which is the first mini-computer ever created. A mini-computer was about the size of this podium. Now, a mini-computer was the first effort to do something other than a mainframe for somebody other than NASA or the Defense Department or General Motors. A mini-computer could just be used by a big company to process its information. <clears throat> now, obviously, nobody in 1965 thought the computer could be a consumer product. It's a very specialized product. You needed a lot of knowledge to use one and a lot of complexity to introduce it into your organization. But the PDP-8 was revolutionary. Uh, it was obviously expensive. And to give you an idea of how expensive it was, at $19,000, which is what the first one cost, it was a full 80 times, actually closer to 90 times, what the average American spent on healthcare that year. So obviously not a consumer product. All of you are carrying in your pockets today a computer far more powerful than the PDP-8. All of you. In fact, many of them are using them now, and I don't blame you. Um, <laughs> 
And it does everything, right? It doesn't just process faster than the PDP-8, but you may have bought it on the basis of its color, or the cool apps, or the camera. It does everything for you. It's a mere two generations later. But here's the interesting thing about the smartphone you're carrying. The average price of a smartphone, now used by a billion and a half people, going to two billion by next year, is 1 40th what the average American spends on healthcare. In two generations, the cost of a computer relative to healthcare, or healthcare relative computer, increased 3,600 times. Now, the only reason this is possible is for us to think that healthcare exists on such a separate island that nothing we learned about in computers, nothing we've learned about in anything else, could matter. And you've heard this, right? You will hear people in healthcare say, technology is driving up costs. There were some technological improvements in the computer in the last two generations. <laughs> technology is driving up costs is often written by somebody on a $250 laptop. They never understand the irony. What else do we hear in healthcare? You can't have a functioning market because consumers don't know enough about healthcare. There were a couple hundred thousand people who knew how to use that two generations ago. That's it, whole planet. What else do you hear? Can never be a normal market because healthcare is not discretionary. You gotta have it. I think most of us feel that way now more about our smartphones than about anything else in our life. What my book is about is why the stuff we learned in, in, in this, in our cell phones, in Starbucks, in Walmart, in everything in our lives has been excluded from healthcare. And it's actually not complicated. It's quite simple. In computers, something happened that has never happened in healthcare, which is that every single person who works in the computer business, including myself, I'm in the digital games business, spends all day trying to figure out how to make the product better, more accessible, cheaper, easier to buy, simpler, more colorful, more fun, more complex, you know, more, more full of, 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 uh, of, of what you need. All of those positive things, better, simpler, cheaper, is what drives fortunes, drives business models in computers and in everything, except in healthcare. You do it better in healthcare, you have a lower error rate, lower revenue. We know that. Cheaper, lower revenue. No benefit of being cheaper. Customer service, lower revenue. What are you wasting money on customer service for? Why is there no IT in healthcare? Why would you make an investment in something that just improves service quality and reliability? There's no way to get paid for that. Your dry cleaner figured out how to get paid for that. But in healthcare, there is no such business model. The argument of catastrophic care is when you get away from the island of healthcare and stop listening to all the sort of weird and specific explanations and think of it as an industry, because 15 million people work in this industry, you realize that the fundamental economic incentives are so different than in everything else that of course we would have a product that is extraordinarily expensive, extraordinarily complicated, has very, very poor service, and has erratic quality. What would you expect to get? Affirmative action has come to the Supreme Court again in the form of Fisher v. University of Texas. The case turned out to be what legal scholar Gail Harriet calls a fizzle. But affirmative action is already back at the high court and will be again. Harriet spoke at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event in September. Fisher versus University of Texas is the affirmative action case that could have been a blockbuster, uh, but it wasn't. 
Not yet, anyway. It may get another trip to the Supreme Court uh, before all this is over, and it may turn into a real blockbuster at some point. But even if it doesn't, it is a modest win uh, for those who advocate race neutrality. And full disclosure, I am one of those persons who advocates race neutrality. Um, the Fisher case clarified the standard that applies to race preferential admissions policies in a way that ratchets up the pressure on universities to justify um, their admissions discrimination against whites and Asian applicants and remanded the case back to the Fifth Circuit to apply that standard. Uh, so the Fifth Circuit is, is, is the court that's going to have to do all the work on this. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But I am mildly optimistic. It's a very short opinion, uh, only 13 pages long, uh, which is curious. Justice Kennedy and his clerks could have written an opinion 10 times that long uh, in the seven months they had to work on it. There is probably a backstory here. Negotiations, rewrites, more negotiations, more rewrites. But alas, we may never know that story. Another interesting fact about Fisher is that it was a 7-1 decision with only Justice Ginsburg in dissent. Uh, that makes it the closest to unanimous the court has ever been on a race preferential admissions case. Breyer and Sotomayor were with the conservatives, all joined Kennedy's opinion. Uh, Elena Kagan recused herself. Um, this was the first decision in a decade on the topic of race preferential admissions. So the obvious question is, why such a long time? Well, for advocates of race neutrality, the court's 2003 decision, Grutter versus Bollinger, um, was like Alexander's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Lawsuits of this kind are very expensive to mount, and you need to make sure you got a good chance of winning. So it was important that the next case that, that, that get that got to the court be one that there was some confidence that it was winnable. Um, so it took a while. It took a while. Um, let me tell you about the Grutter case first, which concerned the University of Michigan Law School, since it's impossible to understand Fisher unless you first understand Grutter. In Grutter versus Bollinger, Sandra Day O'Connor was faced with what one court of appeals judge had called preferential treatment of a, quote, staggering magnitude. O'Connor's five-member majority agreed that this was race discrimination. They could hardly deny it. Um, and they agreed that as a matter of constitutional doctrine, it must be subjected to strict scrutiny. Ordinarily, as anybody who's, who's taken a course in constitutional law knows, um, that means that the discriminators must show, number one, uh, that there was some compelling purpose requiring them to discriminate, and two, that the way in which they were discriminating is narrowly tailored to achieve that purpose. Fine, I'm with them so far. Um, the Grutter Court went on to say, however, that the court should defer uh, to the judgment of the University of Michigan on matters of, of, of education. Essentially, it said that if the University of Michigan Law School says it needs to discriminate, um, in order to confer the educational benefits of diversity upon students, then the court shouldn't argue with that. It should defer. But deference is the opposite of strict scrutiny. It is impossible to strictly scrutinize all laws that racially discriminate and then turn around and defer to the judgment of the discriminator. The University of Michigan's airy claims that, the diver that diversity improves learning 
uh, were no better supported than the claims of the Topeka Board of Education uh, were back in the 1950s, that segregated schools are better for learning. If the court in Brown had deferred to the judgment um, of the Board of Education, then the world would be a very, very different world from the one we're living in now. Uh, not surprisingly, the Grutter decision drew this, the dissent of four justices, but four justices aren't enough. Um, what is curious is that during the same period, um, in the early 2000s, research was starting to receive attention showing just how destructive race-based admissions are. For all the good intentions originally behind them, they just don't work. If the mounting empirical evidence is correct, it, and it's now increasingly difficult to deny it, um, we now have fewer African-American scientists, fewer doctors, dentists, or engineers than we would have had using race-neutral admissions policies. We probably have fewer lawyers, too, and fewer college professors. Um, it should surprise no one that it's not a good idea to attend a school where you need a preference to get into it. We're not doing students, whether they are athletes, legacies, or racial minorities, any favors by admitting them to a school at which they will almost certainly be at the bottom of the class. Most would have been more successful if they had attended a school that better fit their academic credentials. And there is plenty of empirical evidence to prove it, especially in the area of science and engineering. Universities are nevertheless ignoring this evidence. It doesn't fit the narrative. Their narrative is that affirmative action supporters are the good guys. Uh, they're the ones who care, and people who disagree with them are the bad guys. Paranoia, far from being a diversion in American politics, is the style of American politics. So says Reason Magazine's Jesse Walker in his new book, United States of Paranoia. At the Cato Institute in September, Walker discussed the wild history of the United States and conspiratorial thinking. I thought I would uh, start by discussing um, sort of three themes that go through the book. Um, usually I just say there's two, and I just sort of realized doing a lot of radio interviews and such over the last couple of weeks that there's another theme which I did not um, spell out as much, but it helped motivate the book, and I think it um, speaks to the way a lot of people think about conspiracy theories, political paranoia, and so on. And that is that you can't reduce conspiracy thinking, broadly defined, to just a single social or psychological explanation. People love to do this, and there's always sort of the moment, or often the moment, where the interviewer asks, you know, aren't conspiracy theorists just trying to simplify a complex world? And the answer is, well, yes, that's true of many conspiracy theorists. Indeed, it's true of many theorists in general. Theories are good like that. Um, but there are others who just delight in complicating things that seem to be simple. Another uh, popular theory about conspiracy theories say that they take off because people can't accept randomness. That, for example, uh, they can't accept the idea that a nobody like Lee Harvey Oswald uh, could affect the course of history. And again, that, that does describe a lot of conspiracy theorists. But again, there are theorists who thrive on anomalies, who indeed seem happier collecting uh, stories of the unexplained, quote unquote, than they are actually explaining them. There's a whole tradition I discuss in the book of sort of the 
followers of Charles Fort and people who came after him who just love to fight anything that sort of mucks up a theory and then come up with a theory for a day that might explain it. There's also the idea conspiracy theories flourish at times of uncertainty and crisis, and they certainly do. The trouble is they also tend to flourish at times of relative peace and prosperity. Uh, the 1990s, uh, which is about the most peaceful and uh, prosperous time of, of my lifetime in the United States, uh, was a golden age of both frankly fictional conspiracy stories like the X-Files and uh, stories that people believed you know, about the New World Order and so on. Now, one reason why you can't reduce conspiracy thinking to just one social or psychological explanation is because virtually everyone is capable of it. It's not just one personality type. And that gets to my second theme, and one that uh, Gene talked about in his introduction, which is that American political paranoia has been a force in the establishment as well as the extremes, and it has been for as long as there has been in America, at least as long as we have written records of, of America. I, I assume the Native Americans were full of conspiracy theories about one another, but certainly as soon as the colonists arrived on these shores, um, some sort of elite paranoia has been in, uh, in progress. At the same time that American slaves were whispering that white doctors were plotting to kidnap and dissect them, the planter class was constantly seized by fears of slave conspiracies. At the same time that the populist party's rabble-rousers were warning about East Coast banking cabals, uh, Eastern elites were perceiving populism itself as a creation of a conspiracy, perhaps something, uh, a foreign conspiracy. At the same time that the New Left was formulating conspiracy theories about Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson was pushing the FBI for evidence that the communist bloc was behind the country's riots. And I'll give some more examples of elite paranoia later on. And then the third theme is that even when a conspiracy theory is untrue, and make no mistake, some conspiracies are real. The uh, sort of the most common criticism of the book among people who haven't read it is that um, I, how could I say there are no real conspiracies? In fact, I discussed several that you know, were real, uh, involving J. Edgar Hoover and, and other folks like him. And of course, there are conspiracy theories that are half true. They get a hold on some facts and they build out in dubious ways. But even when a conspiracy theory says absolutely nothing true about the objects of the theory, if it catches on, it says something true about the anxieties and the experiences of the people who believe it. It becomes a form of folklore. And I think that, uh, you know, just as uh, an animist um, describes uh, natural forces as though they were concrete things as a will of their own, um, some conspiracy theorists uh, describe social forces as, they were, as though they were concrete things with a will of their own. Um, a, uh, a loss of liberty becomes a plot against liberty. A challenge to power becomes a plot against power. Uh, terrible conditions in the ghetto become a plot against blacks, and so on. So with those uh, as sort of my background, I uh, decided I'd write a book that it didn't uh, espouse or debunk conspiracy folklore, but explore it, just to see what can we learn about America by taking a panoramic view of the fears that different Americans have had. The Obamacare Supreme Court decision was a big and confusing one. Josh Blackman's new book, Unprecedented, tells the inside story of how this constitutional challenge raced across all three branches of government and narrowly avoided a collision between the Supreme Court and President Obama. Blackman spoke at the Cato Institute in September. 
Why is this law so unprecedented? Well, there are a number of firsts. One first, never before in the 20th century has Congress tried to pass a law of such significance in a straight party line vote. The president made the determination that he did not need any Republican support to pass this law, just get the votes, we'll be done with it. We saw later that that would not be the case because you need other support when the law is implemented, but this was a straight party line vote. It was also unprecedented. Never before had Congress forced people to buy a commercial product. There have been some laws about making people in the militia get rifles and things like that, but this was a unique law that forced people to do something. And never before has a constitutional argument developed so quickly, so rapidly, with so much significance, and spread all the way to the Supreme Court less than two years. Uh, my, my good friend Randy is uh, one of the key progenitors, and also Ilya as well. Uh, they dedicate their lives tirelessly to spreading this argument. But it's remarkable to look back. And actually, the title for the book came from you know, an offhand quip I made. So uh, Randy took to using the word unprecedented very often. He said, this law is unprecedented, it's unprecedented, unprecedented. And I made a joke saying we should have a Randy Barnett drinking game, where every time we say unprecedented, we take a shot. <laughs> and uh, it stuck. But Randy said that that was one of the moments where it crystallized in his mind that this had salience. The idea that this law, which forces people to do something, triggered something in the American populace. Because this case wasn't just about the pure Constitution, not, not just these, the, the, this fine bound volume. It's also about the people. The people in various social movements, such as the Tea Party and other groups, had an aversion to this law. And it wasn't just on policy grounds. They weren't just saying, we don't like this because we think it's going to destroy our economy. They said, we don't like this because it violates the Constitution. We actually had people protesting not too far from here with, with signs saying, overturn Wicker v. Filburn, with signs saying, we need to enforce the Constitution. This law unintentionally engendered such a strong constitutional response, a backlash even, that I don't think anyone anticipated. And this law also served, I think, as a litmus test for where the American people are with respect to the Constitution. Now, that's all kind of the, the highfalutin ideas. But the actual story of this case is fascinating. And I will run through it abbreviated so make sure we have enough time for our uh, distinguished co-panelists to speak. The idea of the mandate is actually quite old. Uh, uh, our good friends at Heritage actually proposed in the late 80s. Uh, and some of you might recall that in 1993, uh, Ed Crane, uh, former president of Cato, sent a letter to Ed Fulmer saying, hey, this thing's unconstitutional. Um, there was actually an event uh, where uh, Stuart Butler, who invented the mandate, uh, was, was, didn't come. And Ed Crane joked, uh, I guess we couldn't mandate him to come. <laughs> so the history of this goes back quite a long way. And for many years, Republicans actually supported the idea of the mandate. They said, we think this is a good you know, free market alternative. But Cato, for many years, said, no, this is not free market. It's coercion. Fast forward to 2009, after President Obama was elected, he basically co-opted Hillary Clinton's health care plan. This was her idea. Made it his own. And he said, we will have Obamacare. We will have a mandate. We are going to force people to buy health insurance. Why? Well, it's not fair that all these young and healthy people are free riding on the system, that they can wait to buy health care until they're sick, and you know, they're not going to uh, pay into the system. So they had this law called Obamacare. The problem was it was unconstitutional. I'm sorry, it was, it was unconstitutional, but it was unpopular. Very unpopular. So unpopular that not a single Republican supported it, not one. So the president made a call. He said, you know what? We'll go straight 60 votes. We will just pass it through on party lines. Whatever happens later, we don't care, like Syria. So this happened. You can sense a pattern. This was early on. So you can sense a pattern. But something happened. Senator Ted Kennedy died. He was the 60th vote in the Senate. And after Ted Kennedy died, who replaced him? A Republican in Massachusetts, imagine that, Scott Brown. 
Scott Brown replaced Ted Kennedy. And with that, the Democrats lost their filibuster-proof majority. Okay, so what happens now? They don't have a majority. They send it to the House. Nancy Pelosi had to effectively pass the bill from the Senate. But she wanted to make some changes, and not just some changes, a lot of changes. But if she were to make any changes, as our separation of powers works, it would have to go back to the Senate. But the Democrats were afraid, once they send it back to the Senate, it will be shut down by a filibuster. So the House did these shenanigans, I won't get into it, but they had this reconciliation process where they changed the law, they basically rewrote a lot of parts, and they passed it on a straight party line vote. In fact, about 34 Republicans crossed the aisle to vote against Obamacare. I'm sorry, 34 Democrats voted against Obamacare, which was remarkable. It was only the uh, votes of a few pro-life Democrats like uh, Bart Supek and others who got the law through. But the president was ebullient. He was so happy. He signed the law. He had these, you know, this, this gorgeous signing statement. And he's like, you know, this is the law of the land. And that was March 2010. So the law signed, you know, 2010. That's the end of the story, right? Right? No, otherwise my book would be one chapter. So a lot of other stuff happened. Within nine minutes, nine minutes of the ink drawing on the president's signature, lawsuits were filed across the country. Following a bloody civil war and the defeat of Chiang Kai-shek in 1949, Mao Zedong hoisted the red flag over Beijing's forbidden city. Little has been known about the early years of the communist rule. Drawing on previously classified and other closely held documents, author Frank DeCotter bears witness to a shocking, largely untold history in his new book, The Tragedy of Liberation. He spoke at the Cato Institute in September. What better place on the Cato Institute to talk about the very opposite of the values it cherishes, namely uh, the systematic violence uh, and calculated terror of the first years of the regime in China. I'm particularly honored because this is the, the Friedrich Hayek Auditorium. And had Hayek not written a book in 1947 called The Road to Freedom, uh, The Road to Serve Them, that's, that's very much the title that I would have used for this one. By 1956-57, that road to serve them has been pretty much fully traveled in China. And that's the topic of the book. Uh, in 2006, I read a newspaper article uh, in which it was reported that construction workers in Changchun, a city all the way up north in China, in a region formerly known as Manchuria, had made a ghastly discovery. They were digging, and in that rich black soil of Manchuria, they stumbled upon thousands of skeletons very closely packed together. The residents gathered around the excavated area and wondered, could these be the victims of the Japanese occupation? of the city during the Second World War. One elderly man realized that they just stumbled upon the remnants of the Civil War. In 1948, the communist troops had laid siege to the city, unable to defeat it, that starved it into submission. In the process, at least 160,000 civilians also starved to death. After decades of propaganda about the peaceful liberation of the People's Republic, few people remember the victims of the rise to power of the Chinese Communist Party. 
Let me step back. And why don't, why don't we start on the 6th of August, 1945. Hiroshima, erased in the blinding flash of light. Two days later, Stalin declares war on Japan, keeping to a promise he had made earlier to Roosevelt and Churchill at the Yalta Conference. The Americans gave him plenty of help to do so, at least, at least 600 ships of land lease materials sent to Siberia. So even in the race to reach Berlin and occupy half of Europe, Stalin managed to keep his army in Siberia almost a million strong. Manchuria is occupied within days. But even after the capitulation of Japan, the Soviets do not leave. They stay on till April, April 1946. They hand over the countryside to Mao Zedong and his ragtag army of guerrilla fighters. They establish 16 military institutions. Some Chinese officers go to Moscow for advanced training. Logistical help arrives by train, by air, by sea. From North Korea alone, 2,000 wagon loads are allocated to the task. And in the meantime, the Americans become so disillusioned with the nationalists, and Chiang Kai-shek in particular, that they stop their deliveries of armaments. In September 1946, Truman imposes an arms embargo. But Chiang Kai-shek, rightly or wrongly, believes that he cannot possibly keep hold of China without controlling Manchuria. So he keeps on pouring his very best government troops into that region. And again and again, his best armies are defeated by Mao Zedong. As Mao Zedong has been able to turn that ragtag army into a formidable fighting machine involved in a war of attrition against the enemy, the nationalists. By 1948, the communist troops advance towards Changchun, Linbiao, and circles the city. But when he realizes that the nationalist garrison stationed inside will not capitulate, he orders the city to be starved into submission. 160,000 people die. Zhang Zhenglong, a lieutenant of the People's Liberation Army who later on documented the siege, compared it to Hiroshima. He said Hiroshima took nine seconds, Changchun took five months, but the number of victims was pretty much the same, 160,000 civilians. Once Changchun is gone, other cities are besieged. Beijing, unwilling to undergo the same fate, surrenders. One after the other, cities tumble from Beijing all the way south to Canton or Guangzhou. By the end of 1949, the nationalists flee to Taiwan, never to return. What happens with liberation? Well, in every town conquered by the People's Liberation Army, liberation is celebrated with a very carefully choreographed procession. Soldiers open the parade, 
followed by a truck with a portrait of Mao Zedong and dancers waving rat flags, moving their bodies to the music played by heavy waist drums, gongs, trumpets. It's a fanfare. After the celebrations, come the police. They are less friendly. Within cities like Beijing, Shanghai, special teams trained to take over public security arrive within days of liberation. But on the whole, whether it's in the police station or the post office, city hall, government servants, civil servants, are asked by the communists to stay on and help the new regime. After all, they can't run a country of that size. Well, the police, who stay on, do the rounds, and try to ferret out forbidden items, which range from radios to weapons. But most of all, they classify everybody in these cities and assign them a class label, a cheng fan. There are bad classes, revolutionary soldiers, sorry, good classes, revolutionary soldiers, factory workers. There are middle classes, intellectuals, and bad classes. These encompass capitalists and landlords. All of them are asked to go and transform themselves into new people in schools. All of them have to, to learn the new ideology from Beijing all the way south to Guangzhou. Cities become giant adult education centers, except for a few at the very bottom of the hierarchy, paupers, prostitutes, beggars, but also millions of refugees and disbanded soldiers are sent to the countryside, which becomes the great dumping ground of all undesirable elements. Some of these cities, bustling Shanghai, for instance, become pale shadows of their former selves. Foreigners leave in droves. Shanghai, which at that time was half again as big as Moscow, had a larger foreign population than any city on planet Earth except for New York, and more foreign investment than either Paris or London becomes a dying city within months. Unemployment rockets, trade comes to a halt, shops shutter at six in the evening, a curfew is imposed. Those up north, Tianjin also slips into slow decay. But how about the countryside? I've talked about the cities. Let us go back to the countryside where liberation very much starts with something that has been referred to as land reform, quote unquote. It starts very much in Manchuria in 1947. It's done round about 1952 at the very latest. Some places undergo the process of land reform twice. Let me focus on one small village called Yuanbao, all the way north of Manchuria. In 1947, special teams arrive into this village of 700 people. They try to find out what the power structure is. Who are the elected village leaders? Who are the people who carry credibility? And bit by bit, they try to pent up local grievances and polarize this village into two opposites. A majority, the people, and the carefully 
targeted number of victims referred to as landlords, tyrants, traitors. After months of very patient work, the militia arrive, seal off the village. Everybody has to wear a strip of cloth. The poor, or those labeled poor, wear a red strip of cloth. Those seen to be landlords have to wear a white piece of cloth. These victims are rounded up into cow sheds, one by one. They're dragged out onto a stage, struggled by the farmers assembled in the hundreds, mocked, humiliated, denounced, and eventually killed. Some 73 people in this village of 700 are violently killed. Their assets distributed to the others. The land paced, measured, distributed, furniture, lugged away, grain loaded into baskets, pigs driven along. Nobody here has the opportunity to somehow stand back on the sidelines. Farmers who do not participate in these violent denunciation meetings are themselves denounced as people who are shielding landlords. Mao manages to compel everybody to denounce each other. The result is that in this village and elsewhere, everybody has blood on their hands. The pact between the poor and the party is sealed in blood. Enough blood must be shed in order for a return to the old regime to become impossible. Violence is intrinsic to this revolution. It is not a byproduct. The villagers themselves have to get rid of their own leaders. Yuan Bao was very violent, but take Hebei, where a whole county is bloodied, according to Liu Shaoqi himself, who writes in 1947 that people are being dismembered, buried alive. Xi Zhongxun, father of a man referred to today as Mr. Xi, he runs the country, I believe, reports from Shanxi that even the children of people labeled as landlords are persecuted as little landlords. How many victims? Very difficult to say, but by 1952, 10 million people have been expropriated. 40% of the land has changed hands. Some 1.5 to 2 million people have died violently in the process. Might people be allowed to get on with it? By the end of 1950 or so, one year after liberation? Not quite. On the 20th, on the 18th, sorry, of October 1950, some 200,000 troops cross into Korea and start fighting the American troops a few days later. Mao uses the Korean War as a pretext to regiment his own society. He launches a campaign of terror. He has a directive in which he says that counter-revolutionaries, spies, bandits, remnant nationalist troops must be liquidated. And how is he going to do that? Well, like steel production and grain output, death, 
came very much with a quota mandated from above. The chairman believes that one per thousand in the entire population should be publicly executed. But of course, he's not alone. Before you know it, there are willing executioners on the ground trying to outdo each other, comparing how many people they kill, and sometimes afraid of being seen as lagging behind. Villages compete with villages, counties and counties. By 1950 and 51, in a province like Guizhou, up to three per thousand people are being killed. And then ordinary people themselves, in a very fractured society, use the terror to settle their own accounts, to pursue their own personal vendettas. Take one example or two. The first one from Yanxing County in Yunnan, a wealthy region covered in salt fields, where on the basis of one anonymous denunciation that reaches the headquarters of the party, over a hundred school children are arrested in 1951. Wu Lianying, aged 10, is hung from a beam and he's beaten. Ma Sulia, aged eight, has his knees crushed on a concrete floor. A six-year-old is accused of being the head of a spying squad. Two of these students are tortured to death. You might think, well, that seems exaggerated. But this is the beauty of the party archives in which I have worked to come up with the evidence for this book. There's profuse, detailed evidence about what happened. Reports by the secret police, bean counters who add up how many people were killed, investigations, you name it. So this was not an isolated example, not far away from where I live in Hong Kong. Across the border in Guangdong province is a Luoding County where 340 school children were arrested on the mere suspicion of one case of theft in that entire province up to one third of all the people killed during this campaign of terror, up to one third of all those victims are judged at the time by the regime to be innocent according to their own standards. And then something else is happening. On the cover of these public executions, which are supposed to reflect the wrath of the people, where verdicts are given by people's tribunals in cities. People have to attend them in stadiums, in the countryside, in the public village square. They must witness these executions. But under cover of all that, local cadres pursue their own little personal vendettas. People are killed secretly, covertly, along or in batches, along rivers near ravines, deep inside the forest. In one town called Maogong in Sichuan, some 10 people are officially denounced as counter-revolutionaries, shot in public. Over 100 are covertly assassinated. How many? Very difficult to say, but 
when this campaign of terror comes to an end in October 1951, according to one report, which the Minister of Public Security wrote himself and sent to Mao Zedong, the total reaches 301,800 for a mere six provinces. Boi Bo, father of another man we've heard of recently, Bo Silai, puts the number of people killed during that campaign at roughly two million. So now we are at the end of 1951. Might this be the end of the terror? Might this be the start of a, an era of peace and social stability? Again, not quite. Mao Zedong turns his attention towards the very ranks of the party itself. He believes that there are local cadres who have become corrupt. Many cases are discovered as cadres turn against each other and start denouncing themselves. Two high-ranking party officials are executed in Hubei. They're shot in the heart, not in the head, as a concession to their rank. But something else is happening under cover of popular support for a few highly publicized cases of corruption within the party. All those civil servants, government employees, who had been asked to stay on by the communists in 1949 and even promised the protection and gratitude of the party are no longer needed. A good million of them are quietly dismissed, many of them sent to the Gulag. And even before this campaign against corruption in the party has ended, Mao shifts its attention again towards another group of people. Already in January 1952, there are dark hints about malevolent, evil outside forces undermining public morality. It's not that cadres are corrupt. They've been made corrupt. Mao Zedong says that the bourgeoisie has been waging a savage offensive, quote unquote, against the party. But entrepreneurs, businessmen are already reeling from three years of communism. Everything that stood between them and the state has already been eliminated. But it's not enough. So the very techniques fine-tuned during land reform are now being replicated inside factories and enterprises in the cities. As managers, business people, shopkeepers are dragged out one after the other, made to confront the workers, assembled to denounce them. Some of these entrepreneurs turn against each other, driven by sheer fear, trying to save themselves. Again, no adequate numbers, but in Shanghai alone, some 644 people commit suicide within two months alone. That's about 10 a day. If you try to jump from windows, but the police have erected nets around some of these skyscrapers, so they go all the way up to the roof and take running jumps. Again, we will not know how many victims there are, but this campaign is also followed by something else. 
an attempt at thought reform. Because all those so-called middle classes, those intellectuals and professionals, have to declare their loyalty to the party. The Cato Institute invites you to participate in our monthly sponsor e-briefing series. This special online-only series, hosted by yours truly, is an opportunity to engage in timely debates with Cato scholars on a full range of policy issues. To join the discussion and view previous sessions, visit our website, cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.